0: Please note that this episode of Bits and Bricks contains instances of misuse of the LEGO trademark, which must always be used as an adjective and never a noun. As a reminder, it is never appropriate to refer to the company that designs and produces LEGO brand products as LEGO. Rather, the correct name for the company overall is The LEGO Group.
1: I hope that was severe enough. Was it severe enough? We get- yeah, that was great, Ben. We got it. All right. On with the show. Bits and Bricks. Welcome to Bits and Bricks, a podcast about all things Lego games. I'm Ethan Vincent. And I'm Brian Crescenti. Together, we look back at
2: the rich 25-year history of Lego games, chat with early developers and seasoned studios who have all tackled the creation of video games for one of the most popular and respected toy companies in the world, the Lego Group. Mm-hmm. So, Ethan, yes. uh, I was doing something today. I was going through uh, old recordings. We, we've we been working on this for quite a while now, going oh back to 2019. Yes. Um, and I was going through some old recordings, and I came across one that I think you're going to find very interesting. I'm doing a bunch of research right now on yeah. LEGO video games. Yeah. Their anniversary next year, it's 25 years. And one of those is Friends, which yeah. I, I worked on. Um, yeah. yeah. What, was, what is it? That you did on friends Can, can, I, can I ask you a question be, before we, we dig in? Sure. Um, do you know uh, about Lego Darwin, SPU Darwin? Lego Darwin? SPU Darwin, Special Projects Unit Darwin. Um, no, you don't. <laughs> I don't think I do. You know, it's, it's for some reason that rings a bell, but I don't know why.
0: Well, that that was the precursor of all the digital stuff that Lego is doing. Oh, so that
3: okay. it, I thought you might find it interesting. There was a unit that was open in uh, in Billund in Denmark, and that unit was the precursor of
0: all the the games and all the digital work that LEGO did afterwards.
2: Oh, that's interesting. You... I thought you might you might find that interesting because I don't think many people know about that.
1: <laughs> that's amazing Brian yeah. like uh, rarely would you have a moment like that where you hear something for the first time like recorded um tell me a little bit about this who who's speaking here
2: yeah uh so that's uh Adriana Ezagari. I'm, tra- I'm probably really mispronouncing her name uh <laughs> I interviewed her back in September 2019
1: yeah at like a club or something it's like there's like this thumping y- yeah, background it, noise
2: she I think she's at a cafe in Greece okay uh she's she's got like a, a really interesting background Story that maybe one day we can dig a little more into. Yeah. But uh, obviously, she worked at the Lego Group uh, on 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 digital efforts, including Friends and some other things, and then went on to do a bunch of other work, including working at Sony Computer Entertainment and working on games for a while. And then at some point uh, in in twenty fifteen, just decided, you know what, I'm I'm done with this. I don't want to I don't want to do technology so much. I, I'm sort of burnout. Yeah. And I'm gonna go start my own uh travel company. Yeah, that's so rad. she is now a guide and a coach nice. and she I I believe she lives in Greece but she does these expeditions in Greenland and like goes out kayaking and
1: yeah sounds like she has an amazing life. That's cool. And of course she was involved with SPU Darwin which was kind of this really cool coincidence because you're actually talking to her about you know the video game the PC video game I believe Lego Friends and right, uh right she's like let me tell you something else and that's just so cool that you kind of got uh, got got into that but before we maybe dive into the rich history and the this story this amazing story right of the strategic product unit darwin and all the colorful cast of founders and incredible people we're going to hear about, I think we need to talk a little bit about where the Lego Group was back in the early or mid-90s when it came to technology, right? Um, yeah. The Lego Group's interest, I think, in technology has been around since at least the 80s and its connection with MIT. And it was a love of technology and Lego bricks that first drew Bjarne Tvesco uh, into the Lego Group. and. For anyone who hasn't met Bjorn, I had the pleasure of meeting him in the summer, and he's just this amazing guy who has an incredible 35-year history with the Lego group. Um, as a 17-year-old, he answered the call of an ad. He was living on uh, kind of a, an island at the time, and the ad said, do you want to be a designer? And it was you know, listed as Lego Futura, and he uh, got this kind of black box and assembled – a model, a spaceship model, he was really into space at the time, and he submitted it And uh, as a 17-year-old, lo and behold, he was hired into the Lego group and was actually, you know, worked alongside the creator and and inventor, actually, of of the minifig and uh, just has this incredible history. And he gave us some really good insight into the 90s and just kind of the spirit of the 90s and what was going on and kind of a little bit of the sentiment at the Lego company while he was working there as it related to technology.
3: In the mid '90s, there was a sense that okay, maybe the Lego core idea is it is it done? Is it has it peaked a little bit? Will kids still want to put all these little pieces together, or uh, do we get into a new world where sort of everything is about instant gratification and you just download something and you play it, rather than putting little bits and pieces together? You know, is that uh, is it old fashioned? Luckily, that was completely wrong, but at that point, no one knew. So maybe uh, it was time for, to really change uh, sort of the, some of the core ideas of, of LEGO to, to digital. That was a sense in the air. And maybe fear was a factor a little bit also.
2: So, yeah, I mean, that's great. I love hearing him explain sort of what was going on yeah. at the Lego Group in terms of digital and technology in in sort of the moments before this journey we're about
1: to go on, talking about SPU Darwin. What I love about Bjarne talking about it is he was already engaged in a lot of the computer stuff. Coming out as this, like, young 17-year-old kid, he was doing basic programming. Uh, mm-hmm. It It was a time where there was kind of this... I would say divide between like the the literate with computers and maybe those that had no idea, you know? Yeah. But boy, did the the, the Lego group really embrace uh, this 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 wave that was about to hit them. Yeah. So Brian, let's let's dive in. Tell me a little bit about the origins here of you know this this SBU Darwin.
2: Sure. Yeah. So what became one of the Lego group's biggest early explorations into digitization? started near Bern, Switzerland in the early 90s. Mm -hmm. Um, So there was this eclectic mix of dreamers that included a NASA scientist, a rock and roll roadie, a photography student, uh, and and they all were sort of brought together by the singular vision of a nature-loving, wandering scholar who called himself Dent de Leon de Midi. (laughs) Uh, He was sort of a a Renaissance man. He he went by the name Mm Dandy to his friends. And he was sort of consumed... With the idea of remaking the Lego brick in digital form, and then using those digital creations to create a Pixar-like movie, mm-hmm. and and maybe use them these the sort of digital creations to also do instruction manuals for uh, the Lego group and those theme sets, uh, commercials, and of course even video games.
3: Yeah,
1: and and it seems like even before the pursuit of the that big idea there was a really chance meeting, uh, two actually, between Donde and Claude Ebersold. Uh, He was at the time of 18-year-old kid kind of working at a local computer shop, uh, really literate with computers. And the two formed a friendship over their interest in technology and love of 3D graphics. And here's Claude Ebersold talking to us about that.
0: I guess we were in fall '91 was when it started for me i think uh apple just released quicktime or at least quicktime beta but yeah so uh one of the customers there was uh, a guy called Don de lion du midi uh, which had his uh studio up on biattenberg and uh we heard fabled stories about him doing wild multimedia things in 3d and uh me moving in that direction, I was obviously very curious and interested to meeting him. So uh, I went along for one delivery of some hardware or, or something or and uh, met him up there. And that was it. Uh, obviously, it wasn't like a, a Dundee Claude meeting. Then, you know, I was just some, some tech nerd delivering stuff, you know. A year later, I guess uh, we got a fast forward because... Um, I switched computer stores, a new one opened up at another place uh, called Computer Studio, and uh, Dandy walked in uh, one day, uh, wanted to check out the store and needed some product, I don't remember what, you know. He remembered me, I remembered him, and uh, we started talking again. I eventually showed him some stuff I was uh, working on myself, 3D stuff, uh, and this got the ball rolling really well and uh, eventually we just developed a, a friendship. It was very inspirational. He was one of the only person uh, here in Bern uh, who supported me in my decisions of going down the 3D rabbit hole. Back in the early 90s, no one was talking about that. Keep in mind, this was just the beginning of desktop publishing, you know, so so 3D was another leap away from that, you know. Yeah, he was the only person uh, I could actually just talk about it, you know, and. Uh, Share uh, ideas and and so on, and uh, so I guess I, I was starting to push him to start m- more stuff, you know, do things, you know, so I can uh, be involved and uh, help out and and be part of
1: it. So before they knew it, Brian, the two were working mm-hmm. together on little three D modeling and animation projects, and then one day in 1993, they had an epiphany of sorts.
0: We were talking for a while about different things that we could do. You know, what what kind of projects or which direction could we go, uh, which could lead to some kind of success or at least some recognition and more work, you know? Uh, One day I was up on Biottenberg and I was there once every few weeks, I guess, uh, just chatting with him. Uh, We went for long walks uh, up in, in the mountains there. And one day, uh, we were talking about how everything in 3D looks like plastic. That was one of the key moments uh, when we defined that. So, uh, what can you do when everything looks like plastic, you know? Uh, And I guess a little later, uh, Dundee was reminiscing about it and uh, came up with with Lego as a toy. I guess he was playing with his son Frodo uh, and and had an epiphany about it, you know? So, um, he started talking about, hey, we could, we could do a Lego movie, you know. Uh, Frodo's birthday is in more than a year, so we could uh, create a birthday gift for for his son, you know. Uh, create this uh, little Lego animation thing, or at least some pictures, you know. Maybe a nice birthday card with a Lego picture that we made ourselves, you know. Uh, that was sort of the the very humble beginnings. So, so Abersold said
2: that though they both knew that despite the goal of creating a birthday video mm-hmm. uh, for Dandi's son, the real goal here, the one that was sort of unspoken between them, was something much bigger. The two, joined by a, a friend of Abersold's named Oliva Hornauer, set to work. Uh, first, they purchased a Lego spaceship, mm-hmm. uh, a little box set, and, and started measuring every piece included in that kit, uh, both assembled and as individual pieces. Then they started recreating the pieces using their computers and 3D graphics. Um, an initial test... Of the spaceship moving around in in this sort of 3D space they created looked crummy, uh, (laughs) according to Abersold. But I'm sure it was amazing for its time. Yeah. Um, But still, it was good enough to excite the trio. So uh, as the work proceeded and the time needed to create the the new project, uh, which was meant to be this sort of one minute long short. Uh, got longer and longer, and they realized it was this essentially a really major investment in their time. Hornauer Mm -hmm. ended up dropping out and was replaced by another friend of Abersold's uh, who joined the team. And and this was a a rock and roll roadie with a graphic designer's edge. His name was Alex Fuhrer,
4: and we hear him here talking a little bit about that uh, decision to join them. I did an apprenticeship as a photographer while well, regular school, a little un- irregular school. I went to an international boarding school uh, from seven, eight, ninth grade. Uh, after the apprenticeship as a photographer, I worked as a photographer at the record label, uh, slowly transitioning to computer things by doing their desktop publishing stuff. And uh, we. Uh, actually bought things at a Apple store that was called Computer Studio, where I met Claude. Um, and uh, he was doing 3D things, crazy stuff, but slowly he opened up what he was doing with this crazy long hair, long beard, knickerbocker-wearing, vegetarian guy from up the mountains speaking a weird language from a different continent. And uh, yeah, we we all got along and we started working on the Lego
1: movie. So when you hear Alex here saying the Lego movie, obviously, you know, you're immediately brought to the Lego movie. But yeah. we, we got to remember here, Brian, we're in 1993 as these guys are coming together and working on it on very rudimentary computers, right? And and the right, team worked yeah. mostly apart on the project with Ebersold and Fuhrer focused on the creative and Dondi on the kind of project management and the music. But despite the headway, the team soon discovered that this one-minute video or this ambition of a, of a video was going to take a lot longer
4: than they'd realized. I spent a lot of time at his place because he had the computers and we were just doing renderings, uh, just modeling something, lighting it, texturing it, rendering it. Getting up in the morning, looking at it and saying it's a, it's nothing, deleted it, but learning software. Um, we didn't have manuals. We didn't have, um internet, we didn't have YouTube, we didn't have uh, digital tutors or anything that would teach you how to do it, so we had to figure it out, so we just were sitting down. It was actually pretty clear it's going to be 11 months because if we failed presenting it and making Lego interested in it, we were we agreed that we're going to make it for Dundee's son's birthday, which was in November. And so we had a deadline before we started. And the initial thought was to go through all the themes Lego has. So it was to be the story of Johnny Lego, which is in space and then with pirates and then with castle and then in the desert. And then there was some Arctic series and we only did space. (laughs) And that already was a four minute movie um, with rendering times unimaginable effects that didn't exist, we we took the whole sequence through Photoshop image by image and not used compositing software. We At some point we thought the project was done because the scene we worked on yesterday didn't open anymore. And we let it run for 5 minutes, reopened it, let it run for 10 minutes. Um, for me it was, it took one and a half hours for the file to open. And then it opened at zero seconds and you probably animated on four seconds last night. And then moving to four seconds was another 45 minutes of waiting. It took us about two days to figure out that actually is not broken.
1: I love how Alex talks about that and just understanding the time it took here, Brian, right? One frame, I think of a ray-traced image, for instance, took two days to finish because of the computing power of the system they were using, but also all these other layers and things they had on top. So so they realized that rendering a single minute uh, was going to be a huge challenge. Yeah. So they switched their approach and and software, actually.
0: The main problem was uh, the C-buffer wasn't accurate. Uh,
1: This is Claude speaking.
0: The program often didn't really know what was behind or in front of each other. So there's this one shot where the camera flows through uh, the space police commando and it was just all garbage. It was a lot of flickering, a lot of noise like you get in a, a bad TV transmission the whole ceiling was flickering back and forth but uh dundee was able to reuse that footage as part of a of an in movie in model computer screen where he was transmitting some news or some intel on computer screen and there was this kr- kr- and, uh, fuzziness and noise and all these kind of things uh, that were actual render bugs, actual renderings that we just reused. And so, yeah, that was Dundee's job. He was he was doing that, you know. So, Brian, as I mentioned, in the summer, this was kind
1: of at a lull in the pandemic. There was an opportunity for me to head to Switzerland and actually spend some time with Claude and, and Alex. And I was there with uh, Benjamin Paya, a really good friend of mine, and and we were able to film quite a few things and capture some interviews. And in this beautiful city called Lanzenhäusern, we walked up the road and both alex and claude showed me the actual house where they did all the rendering and and we stood outside and they both commiserated about that that time in their lives where all they were doing was rendering 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 and then occasionally taking these long beautiful walks out in the countryside
4: so that was the place
0: yeah this is where i lived from spring 94 till fall 94 yeah as uh, a two-room
4: apartment, I guess, or two and a half room. That was also amazing, the noise we were sitting in. Remember that day? And then all machines oh. were running, All everything was rendering, everything was running. Mm-hmm. And then we said, let's do it. Let's do it. Let's do it. Let's yes, do it. let's do it. <laughs> it's it's it. it. We pulled the plug and <laughs> the thing that baffled us was the, the silence that yeah. showed up after doing yeah. that.
0: Yeah, I guess we got very used we to all used the white noise that happened. There were a lot of all-nighters. We weren't living uh, morning to evening and sleeping through the night. Uh, no it was really just a uh, task-based, right? No. Yeah, we had to keep the machines busy. Yeah. We were on a schedule.
4: Yeah. Uh, we did make the birthday. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, yeah,
0: uh, it's about half a year, I guess. Uh, we we worked here from spring '94 to fall '94, I suppose. Uh, Until
4: we're done. We were done. It must be September, October. Yeah. We were done.
0: Yeah.
2: So they have this movie. It uh, ends up being three minutes and forty something seconds long. Yeah, and uh, Dandy reaches out to the Lego Group in September nineteen ninety four, and the Lego Group, perhaps not t- to anybody's surprise who wasn't in that small group, yeah. <laughs> tells this group of people they've never heard of before, "Hey, we don't we don't work with outside people or companies, and essentially to go away." Um, I can't even imagine that moment. It must have been crushing. Um, yeah. The others felt like, you know, they had they had gone through this process. They had created something, and they were happy that at least Dondi was able to deliver on the promise of creating this cool film for his son Frodo in time for his birthday.
4: We didn't talk if we bring it to Lego. We talked about once we're at Lego, we're going to do this in real. This is Alex Furr speaking. When we watched the final version of the movie, we said that's going to be the quality we're going to have in real time once we get to Lego and can buy real machines. It was clear. At least that's how I remember it. it well, there was no doubt. Um, and they answered that we have enough internal developers. We don't need anybody telling us from the outside what uh, we should be doing. Uh, thank you, but no thank you.
1: So it's no surprise here, especially hearing Alex, that there was a little bit of like disillusionment, right?
4: Yeah. The, the group split up mm-hmm. and
1: and they all went their separate ways. And this was in November of 1994. Um, mm-hmm. Dandy continued to work on many projects and Claude actually flew to the United States for a job as a game developer. And Alex returned to his normal job of being a roadie and, and other work that he did. The cool thing here, though, is that the story doesn't end, right, Brian? Yeah. Uh, Dandi decides after a few months that the idea was just too good to give up on. And, and so what does he do? He travels to, you know, the Lego headquarters in in Denmark. He books a room across the street at the Legoland Hotel and just started showing up every day at the office, asking to speak with someone.
4: So he went up there, he knocked their door. This is Alex Furr. Yeah long hair, long beard, knickerbocker, round glasses, John Lennon type of guy, he uh, went to the main building, to the reception, four times a day, I think. Nine o'clock, 11 o'clock, one o'clock, three o'clock, for three days. At least that's history, that's the story, right? Um, And um, on the third day, apparently, somewhere, they told him that if he promises not to come back, they will get someone to look at what he's got to show.
3: I heard that Dandy came in to, to Billund. This is Bjarni Ibsvæsco speaking to show this video, and uh, I guess uh, you know that's normally not that's not possible because uh, Lego has a strong immunity system in terms of taking uh, ideas from uh, from the outside. You know, also for legal reasons and so on, we were not really allowed to to take external uh, input like that for product ideas or anything like that. But since he brought a video, I guess uh, they thought, well, let's send him over to the AV department where they do videos, you know, and then he can uh, can show his stuff. And uh, the guy over there called uh, Ricard. He uh, he thought it was really interesting, so I guess he brought it on further into uh, into the company.
0: He was extremely enthusiastic. Uh, this is Claude Abersol speaking. He certainly was able to pull people in. He was certainly able to convince and make other people see his ideas. I think one picture or one poster was extremely important, and uh, that's depicting uh, another LEGO model, the, the Space Police Hunter, as we called him. is a little smaller. I had it in an exploded view. Every element is sort of apart from each other, so you, you basically see every single element, and uh, I guess That must have been a
3: huge aha moment for them. But here, suddenly, there was this this visual thing, something you could see. This is Bjorni Zvezko speaking. Bringing LEGO to life in a new way, in a very uh, visual way. So that was exciting, and it was certainly beyond anything we had uh, managed to do uh, internally at at that point in time. So it's always important to have these uh, key visuals or something you can show that really sells uh, sells the idea that that really uh, opened a lot of uh, minds and a lot of eyes for sure
4: and um, he did get it to Carl Christensen, apparently this is Alex Fur and uh, that was must have been in november or something maybe past november december of 94 so that's pretty amazing, you know, Brian, I yeah. this idea of,
1: you know, Dande being so persistent and just wanting to speak with the owner and CEO of the company, you know, this constant knocking. And at the time... That was none other than Kjeld Kirk Christiansen, who also happens to be the grandson of the founder of the Lego company, yeah. Ola Kirk Christiansen. So we were super fortunate to be able to chat with Kjeld, who was really gracious yeah. to talk about some of his memories of Dundee and,
5: and and the origin of
1: Strategic Product
5: Unit Darwin. He had probably been there at our reception a few times <laughs> when I heard about him. But uh, I heard about this little... Skinny, long-haired, long-bearded guy who wanted definitely to talk to me and show me what he had done, and uh, I asked then our head of communication who invited him into his office and saw what he had done, and was so fascinated by that. So that opened the door, and he came over to me also, and 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 I I was uh, quickly deciding that we should really benefit from from his uh, visions and and from what he was doing so that uh, we started uh, the Darwin Group uh, there in probably 96, 95, 96 years.
2: So it, it turns out that Dondi wins the Lego Group over and they're almost immediately on board with the idea. Uh, so he's given this budget and half a year to create a feasibility study alongside some of the folks at the Lego Group's product development department called Futura. And so Dondi g- gets the team back together again. He gets uh, Claude, he gets uh, Alex, and they do this study and, and return in November 1995 on Thanksgiving Day to pitch the full idea back to the Lego Group and are given the green light to proceed two weeks later. <laughs>
1: Julian Gomez always wanted to be an astronaut. He started saving for flight training when he was just six years old, joined the Air Force Auxiliary as soon as he was able, and was shooting for a nomination to the Air Force Academy when he graduated high school. But at 15, he was in a bizarre crash when an airplane slammed into the car he was in, effectively ending his aviation career. And he said he did receive the Air Force appointment, but that the injuries caused by the accident made him ineligible. Wow. So instead, he decided to pursue computers and he attended UC Berkeley and then went on to work for NASA, the Jet Propulsion Lab, Xerox Park, Macromedia, and even Apple, doing formative work in the field of 3D graphics.
2: Yeah, he he really uh, had a lot of interesting experiences specifically around 3D graphics. Mm-hmm. And, and so while he's working at Macromedia, he's attending this Macworld Expo in Rotterdam, uh, and he, lo and behold, meets Dondi. And Julian Gomez talks to us a little bit about that first run-in.
6: Uh, so that was late 80s. It was at a Macworld Expo, and th- this very hairy guy came up to me and started asking me questions about, you know, what the Macromind software could do and the things that he wanted to do. And we just got to talking and talking and talking. And then after the XY went off to Switzerland to stay at his house and we talked lots and lots more. And we actually, I was at his place in Biottenberg probably every four months or so just to talk more. And he'd come out to Silicon Valley because he was the in-house artist for a company that made a board with a JPEG acceleration chip. So he was in Silicon Valley frequently in order to do, to work with them. At some point, Donnie was contacted by this guy who wanted to do a music sampling station, and this was called the InTouch iStation. So he did the prototype, which was all done in Macromine Director, and then that guy hired me in order to design and produce the actual production iStation. Station. So that was the first project Dondi and I worked on. That was 91. So Gomez, who stayed in touch with Dondi over the years, described
2: him as this trained, fine artist mm-hmm. and someone who had a deep understanding of how technology could be applied to the creation of art. Uh, and it was in 1994, during another sort of expo, SIGGRAPH, uh, where Dondi approaches Gomez about his Lego movie idea. Um, and, and Ethan, you had a chance to talk to him about that in this short uh, excerpt from that interview.
6: So I was working hard at Apple. I was the principal engineer for Apple's Quickdraw 3D. And then at SIGGRAPH 94, uh, Dondi took me aside and said, "Let's. I have a video I want to show you. And it was, it was close to final cut of the Lego movie. And he told me he was planning to go up to Billund and talk to the head of Lego and show him that and tell him he needed to create a database of 3D graphics Lego. So the first inkling I had of the Lego project was at SIGGRAPH 94.
1: Wow. What was your impression of that Lego movie? How would you describe it for, you know, someone who's maybe never seen it? What was your impression of of this thing he had created and kind of
6: nonchalantly kind of popped into your, you know, <laughs> laptop? I was thinking, wow, this would be a smash hit. Now, I remember, I didn't have Lego growing up. It wasn't in the U.S. when I was a kid. So, I saw this. I knew what Lego was, of course, and... and I saw this movie and I was like, oh, man, this is, everybody's going to love this movie. And at that point, when he said he was going to go up to Billen and talk to the head of Lego and that he would probably need technical help later, that's when it first hit me that maybe I should get more familiar with this Lego thing. So
1: a few months later, Donde told Gomez about the successful meeting with the Lego group and his ideas around not just the movie, but an actual database.
6: One of the things Donde said he's always liked about me is that He explains an idea and I get it in two minutes. (laughs) And so towards the end of 94, he told me about this database concept and that's when I realized, holy cow, this is huge. This isn't just a movie. It's actually a huge, gigantic concept.
1: How did he explain the database concept? How did he explain that to you uh,
6: in presenting this idea of a database? Well, the first thing was that there needs to be 3D Lego. This didn't need any explanation because of course there needs to be 3D Lego. But then he went over this concept of a database where everything that LEGO did, like their PR and their building instructions and their movies and their VR games, would be based on the data in this database because there was no need for each activity to have its own data. It should all come from one place. There should be one central reference place for LEGO. And by doing that, by having a common point of reference for every activity, it would enable every activity. And that was how he presented the concept of L3D to me at first.
2: So Dandy reaches out to Julian again around March of 1995. Uh, At this point, he was working on the feasibility study of his idea for the Lego Group, and uh, a group of six people ended up spending a few days in the north of Jutland discussing the concepts and creating the basic framework for an advanced visual computing laboratory for the Lego group. Yeah. Over the following months, the group created a number of proof of concepts that included converting and creating 3D graphics and core conceits for a database. Uh, they did all this uh, so that by that Thanksgiving Day presentation that we we talked about a little earlier, the team would have more than suggestions to show.
6: So at the time that the feasibility report was presented, it was not just an outline of how Darwin would work. This
1: is Julian Gomez speaking.
6: But it included real-life demonstrations of initial versions of the technology. So, for example, when it came my turn to present L3D, I had a, a Macintosh down on the stage of the auditorium, and Pierre was up in the control booth with the server. So I made sure that the steering group understood that You know, here's a guy who's 100 feet away with his server, and the Macintosh on the stage is accessing the server in real time, which is then delivering 3D graphics data. And part of that involved asking them to say, well, would you like me to do this? So it wasn't even a canned demo, it was a live interactive demo. And by the end of the day, uh, you know, we had shown them that not only do you have a plan here for how to do this whole division, SPU Darwin, but we've shown you already that the technology does work.
2: Somebody else who was there was Bjarne, uh, the mm-hmm. the person that we spoke about at the beginning of this uh, podcast, yeah. the the whiz kid who was like really into computers and got that job by building a Lego uh, spaceship. Yeah. So he, he talked to us a little bit about what that meeting was like.
3: It was a huge uh, auditorium, and there was uh, only like a handful of us and a handful from management. And we each had a part where we were kind of uh, showing off our findings and talking to how would the the database help what we were trying to achieve, tying it all together saying, well, it's a good idea to have, like we have one Lego system, we should also have one digital uh, system or or one common place to have all the the 3D elements and so on and so forth. But also trying to kind of paint a picture of future where all this stuff could be used and uh, showing all the the places where it could be, uh, relevant in the organization and so on. It was a, it was a tense uh, meeting, but on the other hand, uh, I think there was also a sense that uh, there was some momentum already behind this. So the general feeling was that uh, this could, could go somewhere and we got an answer very quickly uh, after the meeting that it was a, a go-ahead.
1: Yeah, that's cool to hear Bjarne talk about that that moment where they get the green light. Yeah. Uh, you know, that came about two weeks after the group had presented. And one of the things that I always find fascinating in looking at that feasibility report, Brian, is to see kind of the calculations at the end. And, mm-hmm. and I think they had a proposed budget of around eleven point five million. And I talked to Bjarne about that those numbers and and just that that large
3: amount uh, that they were asking for. It was a lot. Yeah. It was very ambitious. And very uh, non non way to do it to be to be quite honest. I mean, if we have had our ways, we would have a, we would had a slow organic growth of a software department, you know, hiring a person more, maybe two more, and then ramping up slowly to what we were trying to do. So this was more like a big bang approach from zero to a hundred in no time, you know, uh, which was extremely interesting, and also very scary in a way, but uh, also uh, like a very bold approach, I would say, and uh, something that wasn't done very often. Strategic
2: Product Unit Darwin, or SPU Darwin, officially started in January 1996 with a team of just six, growing to 100 in the first years. Initially, that that small team w- were set up in the third floor of the LEGO headquarters. And uh, Julian talked to us a little bit about sort of what that was like and, and how they moved over to a different building.
6: Well, actually, AVCL was at the top of what was then called the LEGO Center, and we were in an unmarked room because LEGO didn't want to advertise that this project was going on. When Darwin got approved, this was considered public information. It was clear that this that one room at the top of this LEGO Center, it was not going to work. So that's when they moved us to the LMX, the old fish factory. That one let us grow to, I think, around 60 people. And even before we got to that, it was clear we were going to need another building. I actually selected a corner of the lobby for my office so I could have an L-shaped desk and was looking out at the meadow outside the building, which was kind of cute because in the spring, the sheep would stand there looking at me with my computers and doing stuff. And the sheep would stand there chewing the grass and looking at, at me, looking out at them. And then I could watch the lambs gambling about the meadow. That was a real demonstration of the verb gambling. Well, I'd be over at LMX at least daily, maybe twice daily, and could see that, yeah, it was, it was very well populated by that point. It had two gigantic rooms, and both of them were full of people working at desks, uh, plus the sound studio and the server room took up a good deal of space. So the Lego company put a lot of work into the
1: big empty warehouse. This this kind of former fishnet plant. Um, the actual address, I think, was like uh, Clowmarket 120. It's, mm-hmm. it's it's an actual location. Uh, you can drive by it. It's not a fishnet factory or a, you know, Darwin building anymore. But it is just just that. It's this kind of super long red bricked building um, that. You know, they had to turn into a studio of sorts. I mean, it kind of had all the markings of a startup here, Brian. They they put in, you know, two and a half meter walls. They put in tables. They created some soundproofing. They created a video editing room. And, you know, they just started buying computers. And eventually, SPU Darwin grew to have one of the biggest computer installations in northern Europe.
0: It was gradually and came in phases, obviously. We didn't just like start and buy all this gear, you know. We we bought what was necessary.
1: This is Claude Ebersold speaking.
0: First, we had a, a single pipe Onyx uh, that we were doing our virtual reality stuff, a desk side uh, version. Uh, we had a, a Challenger server. So yeah, this, this came in gradually. It was only towards the end when we were about 160 people uh, when the scope was a uh, was obvious. Uh, During that time, uh, there was a lot of ramping up in working together with Silicon Graphics and working together with Alias uh, Wavefront back then. So that was a a big manifestation of realizing how how serious this whole thing was when, when software companies were toppling over each other to to give us the best deals and uh, really wanted to be in, involved in what we were doing. So the group itself
2: was broken into four clear divisions, uh, each one focusing on different elements of their vision, of the sort of Darwin vision. They had one team that was focused on video games. Uh, They had another working on creating interactive building instructions. A third was known, this is my very favorite group, as the Wizards group, which was sort of an R&D group. And finally, there was a group focused on building a massive database of Lego bricks known as L3D or Lego 3D. That was this idea that they wanted to literally recreate every single Lego brick ever made yeah. and turn it into this sort of digital version of itself, uh, making an exact copy. And this this sort of database would be sort of the the foundation upon which games and building instruction and all the other things that they've been talking about would be built.
1: Yeah, a lot of different things came out of these groups. Um, The games groups, for instance, uh, worked with Mindscape on the creation of Lego Island. The second Lego video game ever made, and the first created with strong direct input from the Lego group. The software research and development group worked on a project called Rubber Duck, which was the code name for a Lego Technic submarine mm-hmm. that actually launched a set number 8299 in January of 1997 with a CD-ROM that contained 3D video and building instructions. And then, of course, there were the Wizards, who did some amazing work on things like virtual reality and connected experiences. And it's probably here, Brian, that we need to pause real quick and and return to our long-bearded Knickerbocker-wearing vegetarian friend, uh, Dante Leon de Midi, or or Dandy, uh, who led the Wizards group. And he actually carried the title Senior Visionary, right? Yeah. You know,
2: uh, I I, and I know you spent a lot of time trying to get a hold of him because we both really just wanted to hear his story. He sounds like such an interesting guy. And uh, I think we both sent a lot of emails to him trying to reach out. I know my yeah. my attempts go back to, I think, late 2019 and up until I don't about a week ago,
1: <laughs> and yeah. just have never had any luck with him
2: via email.
1: Yeah, it's too bad. I you know when I was in in band in the summer of uh, twenty twenty, I talked to both Alex and Claude and kind of like, hey, what's going on? And they they made it kind of clear that he wasn't interested in revisiting you know his past and didn't want to really talk about it. And I actually. <laughs> had the idea to like roam the streets and right. did like on a weekday morning with uh, with my cameraman and friend Benjamin Paya and we just kind of went down the street that we thought he'd be on where his shop was which also has no eye address it's really hard to find him you know Yeah, but uh, all with no results but um, I, I did find this Brian and I wanted to share it with you it's this little gem uh, that we have from a Danish television station um, and you can hear Dandi's voice as he's explaining the vision of the Wizards
4: group Lego coming from the traditional company that it was to doing these new wild things, which, which are brand new to this company. Um, it was very important to do that in the center, in the mecca of, of Lego. We're uh, trying out new ideas and play concepts. We're working on uh, very high technology, which we realize then will come down to the kids so it will be on their desktops and in their rooms. I think the nicest thing anyone can say to us in the wizard group is, you understand Lego, you are Lego. Um, you have uh, the future of Lego is partially in your hands, which is great for nerds. You know?
1: <laughs> there it is, Brian. <laughs> you know, at least we have that little snippet with uh, the little shout-out to the nerds there at the end. But, um, yeah. you know, let's get back to our various groups at SPU Darwin um, You know, probably the biggest bet the LEGO Group made was with the Advanced Technology Group and the L3D database, uh, the idea of making something as interchangeable and long-lasting as the physical bricks themselves. Julian Gomez led those efforts, and although it was making headway literally brick by brick, the Darwin Group had to deliver on their projects and products, as Claude talks about here.
0: With rubber duck and LEGO Island being a success, uh, people wanted more. Obviously, it it was. We were just picking up uh, steam, you know. It we were just getting going. It was. Uh, we had those first uh, products out the door. They went great. We had a great time creating them, and we had a great time seeing how they're perceived. And uh, we won some awards, and uh, everybody was happy. You know, it was it was happy times. It was definitely our honeymoon phase. Now we're confronted with yeah, show me the money. Sh- show me what you can do with it. You know, uh, we want more. How how is this gonna be a wheel that keeps spinning? You know, that 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 we can uh, implement into into the corporate world of or into the realm of of Lego. And how could this be at, uh, its own department? And uh, yeah, how how did it all fit in from from a strategic project unit to a department from Lego? You know, so several different departments started to emerge focusing on their specific ends and needs.
3: Yeah, I mean, there was a kind of a gap between this very high-end stuff and this sort of very down-to-earth stuff we were trying to do, you know. This is
1: Bjarni Zvezko speaking.
3: We had so much hardware and just kept growing. I remember sometimes going into that uh, big machine room with all the servers humming along. And then just seeing all the performance meters at zero, they weren't doing anything. Just the aircon running, you know. And and of course, it's hard to keep a load on all these machines all the time. But you can just kind of feel all the money flying out uh, over the roof, basically, you know, uh, and over the heads of of people. You know, why do we need all this uh, all this stuff? So, yeah, sometimes it felt a bit uh, disjointed. But on the other hand, sometimes you just have to go all in on something and then see where it lands because you don't really know. Housed away from a Lego
2: headquarters, the group did start to drift away a bit from the central Lego company and the people working there. They were in many ways viewed as this kind of rock and roll group that's sort of siloed away from the rest of the Lego group. And unfortunately, that began to build up a level of animosity between the main company and these young startups trying to recreate the Lego experience and Lego play in digital form. Uh, Claude, talk to us here a little bit about that mounting tension.
0: We came in with this, let's go, let's do it, people, go, go, go kind of attitude, you know, uh overflowing with enthusiasm and uh just wanting to to do stuff you know and uh one thing we heard over and over was was the response of uh, we will see uh let's let's wait a little let's let's see let's talk about it another day you know so we never really got a, a strong support from from the different lego departments i feel again this is my perspective and i don't know what happened behind the curtains i wasn't in management or part of business decisions so i didn't really know what was going on but uh the opposition was quite clear
4: many times we heard the uh, thing that the saying that they were um you just want to eliminate plastic and make uh create to make uh because we were always asking, when are we going to make the movie? This is Alex Furr speaking. They probably perceived this as we want to skip plastic and make the movie. And then I always said, no, 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 no. Because if you make a movie, you could also test things out. You could make a movie or something uh, about a theme you haven't had in plastic yet and then make the plastic. It was always very clear that the plastic needs to be theirs too. You know, it's it's a, it's, it's complementary. It's not against each other. And um, we never, ever wanted to eliminate uh, the plastic, but we kept hearing that
0: from people saying, hey, you just want to get rid of the plastic. What we tried to achieve, this is Claude speaking, is to create a presence of Lego in the digital realm and explore the possibilities and chances technology provided. So if anything, it was just to expand. It was to to provide a digital counterpart to an already genius product, you know, and quite frankly not screw it up. In
1: 1998, the LEGO Group experienced its first ever loss, and the ramifications of that were felt throughout the company. Sales had flattened, and production costs were rising, just as troubling. The company's investment in an array of new products and directions was stretching the company's resources very thin. For SPU Darwin, the impact couldn't have been more immediate. The group had massive ambitions but failed to execute on delivering something in the near term. The group's foundational efforts on the database, for instance, was obviously very ahead of its time and a great idea, but in execution, it was perhaps too far ahead of its time. Creating a single brick to the specifications and quality needed was taking way too much time and and with the group only creating two or three digital representations of the brick in a given day.
2: Yeah, and at the same time, uh, the LEGO Group had, in 1997, founded LEGO Media International in London. Uh, and It was tasked with, among other things, helping to create video games, which it turned out was a key part of SPU Darwin's efforts. And so Darwin, with its massive array of computers, was not an inexpensive investment to maintain. That high cost and lack of immediate delivery of commercial products, coupled with the onset of financial issues at the Lego Group, led to a decision in the summer of 1998 to cut half of Darwin's staffing.
0: I wasn't there for the final run
2: of Darwin. Here,
1: Claude,
0: again. I left Darwin in late spring '98. And Darwin was shut down in '99, so they had another year to go. Uh, the mood changed in '97, or in the duration of '97. Um, I guess there was a lot of pressure from upper management. Uh, they were starting to cut the uh, funds for projects, uh, and there was a, a certain pressure that one felt there—that uh, oh, perhaps Lego wasn't doing so good and. Uh, I think a lot of people also blamed Darwin for it. That that we were just really this this bottomless pit uh, where where money just disappears. And uh, in in preparation for this interview, I found some old documents uh, where where mission statement for the Wizard Group is Dynasty ain't cheap as a mission statement. You know, so to fight against this false expectation that you can just have everything and save money while doing it, you know, that certain things will cost a lot of money, especially if it's fundamental research that needs to get done to make this transition right for LEGO, to to provide the best possible chance for LEGO to, to emerge as a major player in the digital space.
2: Darwin was completely shut down the following year.
1: So Alex Furr talked to me a little bit, Brian, about, you know, seeing the writing on the wall. And this, to him, kind of happened shortly after attending uh, Seagraph. And and he just had an experience there where it, kind of the light went on after that experience. So uh, let's hear a little bit from that conversation.
4: I quit. I saw the writing on the wall after Rubber Duck uh, well, especially after Sikrev. Um, And we had a virtual um, New Orleans up and running where you could walk through New Orleans and see the convention center and the Super Bowl thing, the stadium and so on, and some landmarks. And it wasn't all out of Lego, but it was VR and it was minifigures and, you know. And uh, Kelt was there. And um, I sat next to Cal. Kel. Kelt had a stick because he hurt his knee. And uh, he, he, the light went on after the two hours in the cinema, and he took his stick and looked over to me and said, next year Lego has to be on this screen. And uh, Claude and I were like, yeah, of course, sure. When are we going to make the movie? <laughs> this is step one in making the movie. And so we went back and we took a joke of uh, Julian Gomez about an airplane landing where the co-pilot goes, oh, this is going to be really, really tight. And the pilot, oh, we're going to have to break really, really hard. And then, you know, all that discussion and they finally land. And they, just at the border of the uh, runaway. And then they said, that was a really short one, but look how wide it is. That was the thing we wanted to convert to an animation. So we had these things called um, pet project days, personal education, training days. We could take a day, a month or a week. I don't remember. I think it was a month and if not working on the on the current projects, but working on something we wanted to work on. And we said, we take these pet days, we make them on those, those pet days or we make them during work hours or we make them the week, at the weekend. We work on it in the night, whenever. We just want to get this done. And my direct boss saying, you don't have a client. And I said, I sat next to Kelt, the guy that pays your salary. I was always pretty direct. I never talked around the bush. The guy that pays your salary is our client in this. And you're telling me I don't have a client. Isn't there anything we can make to get to an agreement? He said, no, you can't do it. You have to follow the production schedule. We are tight on people, blah, blah, blah. And that's where I said, okay, this is probably over. I don't know what happened. It just it just went downhill and I heard them talking about Lego Media International something. I have not even I don't know who that was. I don't know where they were. I I didn't care too much anymore, so yeah.
0: I guess that was at the end was was the fall of Darwin in 99, you know, when when they decided to just cut Darwin.
2: This is Claude Eversole speaking.
0: If all you know is a hammer, everything looks like a nail. So if profit is the only thing you measure it by, you can say it was a failure. You know, you, you can say uh, we spent way too much money. Uh, we weren't aware enough of developing with profit in mind, but more the real, the, the core, the nitty gritty, the, what it fundamentally means to be, a virtual Lego character, you know, or a virtual Lego toy for that matter, you know. That was where we were at, but that got lost in in translation, unfortunately. That That is the, the saddest part, and uh, I, I got more and more disillusioned with it. Uh, I realized the Lego movie will never happen.
1: So I think from Claude and Alex, it's, it, it was very clear in my conversations with them, too, that, you know, they, they felt impacted by, by, you know, the closing of Darwin. And Julian Gomez talks about that same thing and, and just what that meant on a personal level.
6: I uh, never really had time to process it because of what I said about having being forced to leave Denmark that actually happened pretty quickly and I didn't get a chance to talk with all all of the people involved. Because one of the things is, at least for Advanced Technology Group, I hired everybody there. So it was a personal relationship with every person in that team. And uh, because I had to leave so quickly, I didn't get a chance to really wrap that up. Uh, That includes with Donnie and Claude and Alex. Definitely, we were all dismayed because we'd been working on this dream for years at that point.
1: Yeah, so obviously this is... You know, a hard thing for a lot of people. Um, when I talked to Bjarne, I got a very different story, and uh, you got to hear this, Brian. This is yeah. this is just kind of sad little moment, but it's it's a great little mm-hmm. story. Check this out.
3: So, uh, so basically, uh, in early '98, I took a leave. I said I was going to leave for half a year to do other stuff. I was also moving in with my girlfriend, now wife, and really uh, also looking forward to relaxing a little bit. Uh, but also thinking we're going to see if I'm going to come back or not, and and also seeing if if Darwin is still around when uh, when I eventually come back in uh, later in '98, which uh, it wasn't. So uh, <laughs> there you go. But uh, it is a little bit guesswork for me. And to be quite honest, I have never really dwelt deep into to the reasons. My sense is that there was a lot of political stuff, and there was. Uh, also some top management people who were maybe not fighting it out, but also seeing, you know, who's, who would own this stuff. So maybe it's not the right thing to uh, to do in the, in the long term. You know, you can do it for a while, but it's really hard to keep that uh, momentum. And uh, with the culture being so different, is it the right thing to do? That was a big question.
2: While initially the impact of investing so much in a group that seemed to deliver so little meant that discussion of the group and the investment was sort of verboten,
1: in retrospect, what SPU Darwin achieved was it was actually meaningful. Yeah, and it was it was SPU Darwin, for instance, that helped to fuel owner and CEO at the time, Kirk Christiansen's passion for technology and interest in pushing the Lego group into things like digital experiences, fluid play, and video games. Darwin was among the first to discuss the philosophical questions of what it means to be a Lego brick or minifigure in the digital domain. How should a minifigure behave and look when freed from its physical form? Can they stretch? Can they bend these kind of non-existent knees? Yeah, and you know, that's seen in every video game
2: from Lego Island to the many Lego Star Wars titles. But it's also seen in the popular Lego movies and shorts from The Lego Movie to Ninjago, Legends of, of Chima, and Monkey Kid. Even the database, which ended up not achieving what was expected, was actually a critically important uh, project for the LEGO Group. If nothing else, it it taught the company how not to create a database of bricks. That was important when in 2001, the company started exploring the idea again and ended up creating Lego Creator and eventually Lego Digital Designer, which today is used in its many forms to help with set design, video games, and yes, even movies.
1: Yeah, and while that formative group of visionaries was disillusioned when Darwin so suddenly shut down, looking back today at the work they did and the opportunities they were given leaves them remembering strategic product unit Darwin as an example of the Lego DNA brought to life. Julian Gomez remains fiercely proud of the database work he did while at the Lego Group and the latitude he and his team were given to do it.
6: The message for people in Darwin is actually the Nike message. Just do it. You may think these problems are huge, but there's a lot of stuff technology can do, especially if you think not only out of the box, but between the boxes. Um, The message for Lego is that they need better corporate memory because they spend all this money on developing stuff and then just kind of shove it aside. You know, imagine where digital Lego design would be if LDD had tried to use some of the um, ATG engineers in developing that. Claude Abersold, for his part, is reluctant
2: to call SPU Darwin and its many projects a failure.
0: I was going to say, I guess we failed, but I guess uh, with with a heavy storm... A phase of heavy tranquility needs to come, and Lego had this phase beginning of 2000, I guess, uh, where after Darwin was shut down, uh, I guess the worst was yet to come. You know, this this wasn't the worst. I think uh, the years of of 2003, 2004, uh, this was horrendous for Lego, and I only I only uh, observed this from afar and only very. Not very intensely. I wasn't like when I left Lego.
3: Lego was for me was, was pretty much a done deal.
1: Bjarni Vesco thinks Darwin suffered from bad timing.
3: Darwin was too early for for its time, and you don't get any awards for being early with with stuff. That's one thing I I realized. You know, it it kind of hurts sometimes to be to be early with a lot of stuff, but you just have to accept it. And again, you can say that in hindsight, but you don't know when you're in it. But uh, I think it would have been better with a more organic growth, where we had slowly ramped up and really based all our products in 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 real reality uh, based uh, uh, concepts and 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 actual shippable products. But um, that's that's just uh, how it goes sometimes, you know. It's that's you can easily say that looking back, but you can't say that looking forwards. I think the saving grace of Lego is the Lego idea. The Lego idea is simply too strong to be kept down, no matter what. It really takes effort to uh, to mangle that idea. Uh, many have tried and uh, failed in uh, in taking Lego in wrong directions, but uh, the core idea is simply too strong. Uh, it's, it is a medium in itself to me. It is kind of like digital clay. It's something you can create anything out of. And, and uh, the, the core idea is strong. Uh, there was this time where even LEGO lost confidence in, in the core idea of LEGO. And would kids really love to put uh, little pieces together? But uh, the kids tell us that uh, they still want to put together elaborate models, you know? It's, it's fine that it takes hours to create a model. It's not a problem. Maybe it's even a good thing in these uh, times with a lot of instant gratification and. And all the all social media and all the the fast digital stuff, maybe Lego isn't a kind of antidote to that now. So I think um, it's just a very strong idea that you really can't keep down um, no matter what you do,
2: Kel, thanks so much for talking with us about the company your grandfather founded and you ran for some time. Uh, you've had so many amazing experiences from ushering in the era of the minifigure to spearheading those first moments of the LEGO Group's digital efforts. I, I'm, I'm just wondering, if you look back today at that history, how do you now view strategic product unit
5: Darwin? I remember back, and I think it was a fantastic experience, because, for instance, uh, We bought uh, some of the most fantastic silicon graphics computers and there was so much computer power in the Darwin group. And, and I think about 15 crazy people who Dante knew already. And the, the basic idea, of course, was to uh, make all our bricks digital, so that you both can uh, easily make building instructions with digital, but you can also make games, and you can sit there and uh, build whatever you want digitally. So I I thought that idea was wonderful, but I must also say it was quite uh, costly, but more importantly, it was really uh, too early, uh, but it was fun, and uh, I, I think back on trying out virtual reality myself and, and walking about in in uh, the house of as a minifigure <laughs> and so on. So it must be seen as a project which was too early, but I think we did learn a lot still from that experience. Um, so maybe it was worthwhile. <laughs> Hearing
1: Kelt talk about how SBO Darwin was worthwhile, ah man, what what an amazing moment. And, and what a great conclusion to this as well, Brian. I think about, you know, just the, the effort and the vision and the dream that these early friends had coming from Switzerland. And I can't tell you what a pleasure it was to, to meet them. And one of the most painful things, I think, in putting this story together is just how much was left out. Um, there are so many great things that Alex and Claude and Bjarne and and Julian shared with me, and I look forward to putting that together maybe into something else and uh, hope that that will happen soon uh, after this, this period we're in. But for me, the big takeaway here is that when you dream big and you knock on those doors and you don't give up, um, you just might break through. And when you do, you can, with that momentum, hopefully shake things up. And and I see just such a beautiful passion and such a force taking place in trying to help the Lego group achieve this goal of digitization. Um, This was a really tremendous task to say, we're going to take every single Lego piece and Lego brick and we're going to try to make it digital in a time where not too many companies were doing that, in a time where um, not too many companies were dreaming up creating all kinds of catalogs and movies and video games and wanting to do everything at once. it was its biggest ambition and achievement, but it was also maybe its biggest stumbling block in trying to do everything at the same time. So I still hold such a you know, special place in my heart for these, these individuals who were just full of ambition and dreams, and I think some of that spirit, and I know some of that spirit is actually still alive today in the LEGO Group and in the LEGO Games team as I talk to them and meet with them, and something that I've learned throughout the podcast. Yeah, I um, it, it's 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 so
2: wonderful to stumble upon something like this as a journalist as a researcher uh, to find these sort of skunk works uh, that are perhaps known about within a company but not very well known about outside the company. So so having the opportunity to look at this, I think, was really interesting. And you know, I think it's really telling too. I think despite the fact that I, certainly at the time it was viewed, I think, as a failure by some and perhaps even embarrassing by some. Uh, I think that in in retrospect, looking at it through the eyes of history, that it is uh, an important moment in the LEGO Group's evolution of, of its system of play, of its, its idea that it has created a toy that will always work with other parts of its toys, that those bricks will always interlock. Um, and, you know, that's all caused by the the drive of Dondi and his team, uh, th- this formative idea that they had, that they sort of pursued, and Dondi just absolutely wouldn't give up on and managed to convince everybody that this was a good idea. Um, and I think now... When you look at it and, and when you hear what people say about it, I think the, the lesson for me is that sometimes success doesn't come down the path you expect. You know, it comes years later, and maybe it's in the minifig face of Luke Skywalker or the, the amazing animation of the Lego movie or, or even in the delight that is delivered through something like uh, Hidden Side.
1: Bits and Bricks is made possible by Lego Games. Our producer is Ronnie Scherer. Your hosts are Ethan Vincent and Brian Crescente. Episode producing and editing by Ethan Vincent. Writing by Brian Crescente. Mixing and sound design by Dan Carlisle. Music by Peter Primer, founder Music, and Enric Lindstrand from the award-winning game Lego Builder's Journey, which you can play on Apple Arcade today. We'd like to thank our participants, Claude Ebersold, Alex Fuhrer, Julian Gomez, Kjell Kirk Christiansen, and Bianca Tvisco. Additional voices, Adriana Izighiri and Dante Leon de Midi. We'd also like to thank the entire LEGO Games team and Anna Stankret home for additional recording support. For questions or comments, write us at bitsandbricks at lego.com. And as always, stay tuned for more episodes of Bits and Bricks. <laughs>